Hi, my name is Adnan Mahmutovic, and this is Love and His Discontents podcast. It is a great pleasure today to have this interview with uh, my dear friend and uh, uh, teacher and mentor, Ishrat Lindblad. Uh, and um, it's it's a really special uh, occasion for me because uh, I've uh, I've uh, done a couple of these interviews of, uh, on um, on the podcast, uh, and I've been wanting to do this with you for such a long time. I mean, you were the first person on my mind when I thought of doing something on Shakespeare. Uh, and uh, I, w- I want to start this as kind of a personal introduction, if you don't mind. Uh, so, uh, for the viewers, uh, Ishrat Lindblad, and as you can hear from the name, uh, it is a Pakistani first name and uh, a Swedish surname, is uh, um, my first teacher of English. So, I remember back more than 20 years ago when I came to Stockholm University to the English department, I was one of those students who came to the department just as uh, anyone else to improve my English. And I had kind of bad grades in English before that. And, um, you know, I was kind of just, I think I was on the reserve list and it was kind of very hard for me to get into the program. Uh, and uh, there were lots of, you know, different kinds of lectures. And uh, I still today remember your lecture uh, because you came out and forgive me for describing you in this way. Uh, uh, among all the, you know, the English professors, the uh, the American professors, the Swedish professors, uh, you came out. We had this big lecture in a big auditorium, and uh, this is the way I, I, I remember it. There is this uh, tiny uh, Pakistani woman uh, in a sari with this amazing, huge voice. We just kind of took over the entire auditorium, and uh, uh, my thought was, I want to be her. Uh, so, so that's where I kind of really, that was a, a breaking point for me, where I felt like, I want to do literature, uh, I want to do drama, I want to be like, li- like you. you know? uh, and um, over the years, you remember, you know, you were my teacher in so many courses, like uh, the uh, you know, English one, English, like those courses, drama courses, especially Shakespeare. Uh, you, uh, you made me love Shakespeare so much, but just drama in general. And, uh, when I later became um, a PhD candidate, uh, you have been my mentor and my fiercest critic, I have to say, throughout the years. Um, and when I finished, you, you remember that in 2010, uh, uh, there was someone who came to me and said, uh, uh, you know, Anan, I think because you asked me a very good question in the from the audience uh, when I was um, uh, defending my thesis, and someone came to me and said, uh, uh, "I think Adna, you are happy now because uh, it looks to me like um, you were writing this for Ishrat, <laughs> and it, it was almost like a like a conversation that my thesis was almost like a critical conversation with you, uh, and not just." you know, the entire scholarly community. Uh, so uh, I think you are a, a major reason why I have uh, uh, been able to develop uh, as a critical thinker, as a writer, as uh, a lover of literature. Uh, so uh, basically what I want to say is that I'm, uh, I love you very much and I'm so happy that, uh, that after 
you know, more than two decades, we are in this situation, and I can I can show you to the world and and who you are and uh, your uh, knowledge. Thank you for accepting this invitation. It's definitely for me to thank you, Adnan, because I feel quite overwhelmed by your introduction, and certainly don't feel I deserve it. But I must confess that I have always loved drama. In fact, my main ambition, as long as I was at university myself, and we had the privilege of acting in plays every year, and we mostly acted in Shakespeare plays, so I had the experience already as a seven-year-old of acting one of the witches in Macbeth. And I named my very first Scottish terrier Macbeth. (laughs) So basically, acting in Shakespeare's plays has been part of my life through college in Pakistan and in England when I was at school in England. And I would really have chosen to be an actress. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, because my Pakistani parents were very conservative and they didn't consider it possible to have a daughter who chose a profession like acting. It was very much the atmosphere of Shakespeare's time that respectable women don't act. So I decided, okay, in that case, I'll accept the fact that I can't act. And by sheer chance, I was offered a job as teaching English literature. And it's important to me to say that I've never taught English. I've always taught English literature because to me, Literature has this tremendous advantage of being able to be interpreted in many different ways and in many different contexts. So it's always seemed to me one of the attractive things about literature that you can have completely different interpretations, and especially in Rama, where you can say the words, but you can show with your body that you don't mean them. And you can in that way, suggest completely new interpretations of the same text. That's right. That's right. Yes, and and that's, and that's something that uh, absolutely that's something that is the reason why in my teaching I tend to uh, ask students to perform scenes from the, even novels, not just drama, it, it, to to show them that there is, you know, that kind of. Uh, range of, of interpretations that can arise out of so you can do something serious but it looks silly and and so on so you know, maybe you you uh, you speak about love but uh, you show hate or jealousy or something something else exactly that really is one of the most attractive things about the texts and I always tell my students that you can say completely opposite interpretations to what I'm presenting as long as you can give me evidence from the text. So the most important thing is to support what you are saying with an example from the text. And actually, when you speak of Salman Rushdie, I have something of a guilty conscience because I remember I had done a lot of work on Salman Rushdie and I must confess that he's actually a second cousin. His uh, mother was my father's first cousin. And that's one of the reasons why I didn't want to get involved in this whole fatwa business, because there was a family relationship involved. And uh, for that reason is one of the reasons why I felt, no, I'm too biased. I can't be a supervisor on this particular subject. I didn't know that. No, I never told it to anyone as long as as the um, career was alive. But once I retired, I feel I can admit it. But I remember when he came to Sweden, uh, then 
somehow Ersten Sjöstrand, who was in the Swedish Academy, knew that he was a relative because I remember I was invited to the dinner with the Swedish Academy when they had him over at Ersten Sjöstrand's home. So, but Salman Rushdie also had great problems with his family because of uh, moving to England and um, writing very uh, critically about Pakistan in the book called Shame. And so that uh, many of his uh, relatives felt they wanted to have nothing to do with him. That's one of the topics that one can go on about for a long time. Indeed. And in this podcast, we are uh, we are going to talk about uh, love uh, in Shakespeare in particular, uh, but I also wanted to, to say some general things about love as well. And uh, when we uh, connected over this, you uh, asked me how come I never uh, spoke about the very title of my uh, podcast, which is Love and Its Discontents, which uh, takes its title from Sigmund Freud's Civilization and Its Discontents. So uh, you said that you wanted to share some thoughts on uh, that and uh, wanted us to talk a little bit about that. I thought that it was... So obvious to me the minute I saw your title, well, you must be relating this to Freud's discussion of civilization and its discontents. And I also thought it was interesting because the original German title uh, uses the word Ubehagen, uh, which is very close to the Swedish uh, something that is not pleasant. And I remember that the very first translation of Freud in English um, actually use the word discomfort. Mm -hmm. So civilization, the discomforts of civilization. But then when this translation of um, civilization and its discontents came out, that was the most popular. And that was really the title that took. And I think it's important to explain that in Freud's term, when he talks about civilization, he's emphasizing the community as the group that binds people together and that because man is a social animal he is inevitably uh, drawn to other people and he also makes the point that it's men who are best at belonging to a group uh, because they are like each other and understand each other better so I thought that was very relevant to Shakespeare, who puts a lot of emphasis on male friendship. And then, of course, the question of the discontents are related to the fact of the individual's need. And the individual's need is often in conflict with the need of the community. And so there is this constant division within man's soul between the idea of belonging to a group and the need to be oneself and one's own identity. And I thought that if one related that to your title, Love and Its Discontents, then you could say that love also, in a way, suggests emerging with another person and their desires and their wishes, which means that you have to give up some of your own. And I certainly feel that in Sweden today, where more and more women are insisting on finding their identity, you can see that many of them choose to stay unmarried or even to leave husbands with whom they can have lived for a long time because they feel that they are no longer free 
to be what they actually want to be. And so to me, uh, this connected very much with my concept of Shakespeare's attitudes to love, because it seems to me that his opinion of love is certainly rather negative. Uh, or romantic love. Uh, well, it seems to me that he shows the darker side of love, even when he's talking about romance. And even there he connects with Freud, because Freud has this um, observation within civilization and discontents that uh, the idea of an ideal love is pure romantic fantasy, and it doesn't really exist in the real world uh, because man's aggressive drive is too strong to allow ideal love to exist. So I was thinking, like in in Freud, so when he uh, he seems to pit eros uh, against civilization. Uh, he seems to think that, okay, well, there is this erotic drive, which is this raw, natural drive in, in, in human beings. And civilization is there to, like, tame that drive or control it or shape it in, in a certain way. And that's where he finds this, uh, uh, the, the clash between civilization and erotic love, uh, or, which is then later on, like, romantic love, as they're kind of opposites, uh, and for me, it's, it's kind of interesting. I don't know what you think, uh, that he, uh, in a sense, what, what you said about um, uh, the two people coming together and they have to give something up in order to be actually together. That means that they become a social creature. Like right? It's like two individuals uh, creating a bond. That means they are the, the smallest kind of community uh, that, that there is, the two, two lovers. Uh, and that immediately, uh, and yet at the same time, uh, it's almost as if it's a contradiction because a civilization is like a lot of people. Uh, so the, uh, so in order for this erotic drive to be realized, uh, there has to be some kind of a social entity, which is the two lovers, the smallest one. But then, you know, the bigger it is, you mentioned family earlier, there is the nation, ethnicity, you know, all those things like uh, that, that binds us socially. Then it enters this kind of conflict. So, so it's, uh, it's, it's kind of fine. I mean, we have this in Romeo and Juliet, don't we? Like we have the two lovers and then we have the families. Uh, and uh, the two lovers seem to be like, oh, well, they are uh, this pure couple. They, they, their love is pure. And immediately that is pitted against, uh, against their families, social structures, and so on. And I feel we also find uh, a similar thing in Othello. When um, uh, when Iago is uh, trying to work at Othello, when he is trying to show him that Desdemona is uh, not really loving him, he says, well, if she betrayed her father, why would she stay with you? Because, you know, the filial love, the, the, you know, that kind of structure is far stronger and far more important than her love for you. So do you feel that Shakespeare is kind of... Um, it's really interesting that is he trashing <laughs> romantic love like Freud or, or what's, what's going on? Well, I would say that one can never say what Shakespeare as a right. private person is trying to do. But I certainly think that the way I interpret a lot of the plays, it certainly suggests um, that what Freud actually said that when people 
fall in love. They say, you and I are one, which is the most unrealistic thing that one can say, because against all realistic evidence, they are claiming that they are one. And I think that, um, of course, there are many explanations to Iago, um, because uh, first of all, I immediately associate his name with the famous Moor killer, Saint Iago in Spain, who helped to defeat the Moors. And so I think the fact that he gives him the name Iago suggests that he's a Moor killer. And then it also seems to me, again, if you connect it to Freud's psychology, that uh, basically Iago is suffering from a lack of self-security. He doesn't have uh, any confirmation that he needs. And so immediately he um, wants to be uh, affirmed in some way. He's lost the position of ensign to Cassio, and there are many such setbacks. Uh, and you can also see in his relation to his wife, Emilia, that she is very much the obedient, submissive woman until she realizes that he's been the one responsible for the death of Desdemona. And so, again, you see a criticism of love in this obedient wife. You see a criticism also in Othello when he claims to love Desdemona so deeply, because if you analyze the language, he's constantly speaking about himself. And it's the ego, I did this, I did this, and the number of times that he uses I, if you start looking at the language, it's quite obvious that he's being very egoistic. And it's his stories that have seduced Demosda. If anybody has exercised magic, it's Othello. And I think that that's a very clear example of how Desdemona is truly devoted and faithful to her husband and is literally willing to give up her life for him, which according to the Bible, you lay down your life for your friends. And uh, still, Iago doesn't uh, realize what he's driving Othello to. And when Othello himself realizes what he has done, then interestingly, he reverts to his role as the Muslim Moor who once killed the turbaned Turk and now kills himself. And uh, I think you touched on an important point, and that is that his insecurity in himself, who he is, uh, is what uh, uh, becomes his downfall. Because uh, he's not question, uh, is he even lovable? Does he deserve this uh, love uh, or this faithfulness? Uh, so uh, you're quite right. He is at the same time egoistic, but his sense of self is very weak throughout and that becomes like an issue it's almost like they're not quite equal in love and that fact like the it, sort of like the, the two people they need to at least think they are equal in love that they equally deserve each other this thing like one plus one becomes like one <laughs> one plus one is one uh in in in, in some way but here um, um i'm not sure how how do you read this like it, it, well, it seems to me that his sense of possession, possession mm. that you possess the woman that you love and without even needing the verification if she actually has been in any way unfaithful. Mm. 
um, and his complete trust in Iago, uh, to me, very definitely indicates that um, he might have been attracted to Desdemona because she belonged to the superior white group. And in that way, again, in Freud's, you project onto yourself the dislike and you see yourself as the superior people see you. And he projects onto himself that negative view of the Barbary horse and the black, blackamoor as evil. Absolutely. So that is, he is, uh, he conceives himself, or at least he is inculcated into this thinking that uh, he is in, unlovable in principle because, you know, he is the, the foreigner, he is the other, he is this and that, despite the fact that he has accomplished so much in this society. Well, it seems to me that the Duke certainly recognizes that. And uh, he gets a lot of confirmation in his role as the warrior. And uh, that is the most important role for a man in, in terms of manliness, that he is the successful warrior. And even to the end, I mean, he sees himself as the warrior who kills the turbaned Turk, the terrible fellow. So uh, it seems to me very clearly that he's um, not a good example of perfect love. <laughs> Uh, if anything, Desdemona could be regarded as the good example of perfect love, but then you see where it leads. It's almost like uh, going back to Freud, because Freud says at, at one point, like not everyone is deserving of love. So he doesn't. He is very much going against the Christian love thy neighbor as 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 yourself, uh, and he is saying like, uh, well, there has to be reciprocity. People uh, need to kind of uh, live up to certain expectations. So if someone is not deserving of your love, sh that person shouldn't be loved. Uh, so here we, there is that sense, like, as, as you say, her love seems almost too perfect, like so unreal, right? Uh, it's like, how come she's so forgiving? And uh, uh, whereas he's doubting and so on. So, so I think from Freud's point of view, he would see that Othello is not deserving of her devotion. Mm. I, I would agree with that, certainly, mm. yes. Yeah. But you, you said something about the, uh, that in Shakespeare we find that he seems to, uh, he, his plays, there seem to be a preference for male uh, friendship love um, over romantic uh, kind of uh, heterosexual love. Uh, can, can you give examples and what... To me, it's very interesting that what is supposed to be one of his earliest plays, um, Two Gentlemen of Verona, and one of his last plays, Two Noble Kinsmen, both of them focus very clearly on male friendship. And uh, the men in these two plays actually speak of each other in terms of love. And, uh, for example, in uh, Two Nobles Kinsmen, the very first time that uh, Palamon and Arcite arrive on the stage, uh, he says, you are dearer to me than blood, you are dearer to me than my brother. And the way that they express their love of each other is very, very strong. And the same thing is true in Two Gentlemen of Verona, that when uh, he is... Uh, sent to uh, away from 
Milan and sent in, uh, sent to the Duke of Milan. Uh, then his friend follows him and doesn't stay with Julia, who loves him. And in both cases, these two gentlemen, in different contexts, fall in love with the same girl. And the girl who really loves them has followed in disguise, and she sees how unfaithful they are. And especially in Two Noble Kinsmen, where uh, he actually tries to rape uh, Sylvia when she won't give in to him, and Sylvia remains true to her love. Uh, Then he tries to rape her. And the astonishing thing is that both his true love, Julia sees that, and Valentine, the true lover of Sylvia, sees that. And so they decide to fight a duel. But when it comes to fighting with each other, um, they decide to forgive each other. And he offers his love, Sylvia, to Palamon. So it seems to me that because of the ending in both cases, the girl is sacrificed as if she was a possession and offered to the man whom she doesn't love. And the man whom she genuinely loves is willing to give her to his friend. So that, to me, certainly is a very clear case of uh, homoerotic friendship. And then also in a story like The Winter's Tale, where the king invites his best friend and then he suspects his best friend of having had a relationship with his wife. And then he turns against his best friend, uh, but rejects his wife completely as well. So it's as if male friendship is the dominant, uh, dominant pattern in many of the plays. Yeah, I, I was actually quite surprised to realize that when, uh, I, when I was kind of scanning through the, the plays and, and looking for it, like when you, when you realize that something like that is uh, operative. Uh, I mean, even in Othello, Iago seems to be kind of jealous of Othello that, you know, their love, their friendship from the war, I mean, they, they were... Uh, in war together, they won these battles together. Uh, so it's not only the jealousy of uh, Othello advancing, but also the fact that now Othello's love is uh, is uh, compromised. That now he loves Desdemona so much, you know, he's uh, showing this love to, to um, unworthy individuals. And not so much to him. So there's like a double edge to to this. Almost like the jealousy is like, why don't you love me so much? And throughout the play, uh, Iago, every time Iago tries to manipulate Othello, he uses the word love. I only do this because I love you. I, you know, I'm, I have no other interests. It's just like I'm looking out for you. I'm, I'm on your side. Like she's cheating on you and these people are against you and these are against you. You know, so he uses that friendship love as a, a kind of means of manipulation. Uh, that, in a sense, too indicates that he is uh, that uh, friendship love is valued higher in uh, in these uh, stories. But there, I think, from the dramatic point of view, uh, Shakespeare has been very uh, careful in informing the audience already in the very beginning of the play 
when Iago says, I am not what I am. And so he indicates immediately that what I'm pretending to be is not what I really am. And uh, that is shown not only in his relationship with Othello, but also in his relationship with uh, Rodrigo and the way that he uses Cassio. Um, so he's completely without any sense of ethical morality. He's just willing to sacrifice anybody and anything for his own purpose yes. and even kills his wife, Emilia, at the end. So you can really see that um, Iago is uh, very, very definitely a symbol of uh, disaster for any kind of human relationship. Yes, and I think this uh, this contrast between his disingenuousness, this uh, falsity, and this evil, uh, in contrast to uh, what what I mean is the the fact that he uses friendship, love, and love in general as a tool, uh, because he says, you know, love for me is a set or a cyan, and he doesn't believe in, in love, but he's using it as because. In that way, he shows its value in society or how it's used in society, and, and he's using it against civilization in Absolutely. a sense. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right? Yes, I think that's very well put. Yeah. I certainly yeah. agree with that. Yeah. And for me, that's fascinating. I mean, that realization that uh, even uh, because we've all uh, both done drama, and I think this is a part of you know acting, and that's something you can discover when you're actually acting. Um, one thing that I, I found really fascinating is, uh, of course, we, in Shakespeare, we have these soliloquies and, you know, turning to the audience and speaking. I always found it fascinating that, uh, Iago is, uh, is exactly as you say, he's honest about being, trying to dupe everyone. Right? Yes. yes. admits that to the audience. To the audience. Soliloquies. Right? Yeah. Uh, and for me, that's an interesting trick because uh, if he's this kind of devil, he needs to be very charming and, uh, uh, and, and so on. And it's like quoting the audience. It's almost as if he is um, uh, telling us, the viewers, uh, I'm duping these guys, but they, they had it coming. But I'm honest with you. I love you. So it's almost like, uh, you know, trust me, whereas uh, n no one else can trust him. I don't know if you, uh, if you see this kind of meta gesture in, uh, yeah, that you somehow like you have to trust him uh, to an extent as an audience. That's an interesting observation. I haven't thought of the fact that the audience winds up trusting uh, him because they uh, basically, when he's telling them that he's uh, not what he's pretending to be um, and revealing his evil purposes, it's very difficult to feel a sense of empathy, uh, very yes. difficult. Yes. Because I think, you, if anything, you feel pity for Desdemona, who is being the victim of this. And uh, you know that when she is appealing to Othello to allow Cassio to uh, be not to be discarded. Um, he suspects her of doing this only out of love for Cassio, exactly, yeah. and he doesn't imagine that it can be out of a genuine sense of uh, human sympathy for another person, and that he should trust the fact that a handkerchief is ocular proof. Yes. Is uh, again. I mean, it shows that 
Othello is basically a person who doesn't understand human nature, doesn't see through Iago's tricks, and doesn't trust Desdemona until she's dead. Is that showing uh, this sense that the inner love is making you your um, uh, kind of rational uh, mind or uh, uh, that it puts it on um, on hold, like or disturbs your um, uh, your your thinking? Uh, uh, that it really is like the opposite of the rational uh, thinking, because I'm thinking like if you're buying. The handkerchief thing, which is so ridiculous, and uh, and a lot of scenes in the Two Gentlemen of Verona. I mean, it's almost like Shakespeare is really ridiculing people who are infatuated uh, romantically. Yes, I certainly think that in a play like Midsummer Night's Dream, where there is a great deal of infatuation, and people can change from loving one person to the other very, very rapidly. And it's through the use of magic. So it's not realistic at all. And it's interesting that uh, Thesis and Hippolyta, uh, whom he's conquered as an Amazon, but the very name Thesis suggests a person who has had many lovers, because that's the name we associate with Theseus. And uh, both in um, Hippolyta saying, go and... um, help the people when the three queens come begging him to help them uh, defeat Creon in two noble kinsmen, and also Hippolyta and Thesis when they are going to marry into uh, Midsummer Night's Dream. In both cases, the marriage is postponed. (laughs) And so you really wonder how true a a lover and a husband will Thesis be. You don't really trust him all that much. (laughs) <laughs> and certainly not the lovers in Midsummer Night's Dream. And uh, in the final speech, when they talk about imagination, that again is using the same vocabulary that uh, this kind of ideal love and perfect love is imagination. And that makes me think about the sonnets, because if you think about Shakespeare's sonnets, which are perhaps very often quoted as being uh, really famous for their declaration of love. Uh, If I look at them more closely, to me the two that are most famous, one is Shall I Compare Thee to a Summer's Day, and where many people interpret that sonnet to say that uh, his love for her, she is eternal, thy, you are eternal. But the end of the sonnet twists it around and says um, that even if you don't live eternally, the work that I have written in your name is what will live eternally. So it's the words proclaiming her beauty that are going to live on, not she as the eternal fair. So to me, at the end of the sonnet really twists it around and suggests that the Art of the poet is what is going to last, not love. And even more so in the one about uh, let me not to the marriage of true minds admit admit, uh, impediments, because he talks about love in such hyperbolic terms. I mean, he goes on by saying uh, love is not time's fool 
and he talks about it being the star to every wandering bark that is in tempests not shaken. But at the end, he says that if this be error and upon me proved, and it seems to me any reader would say that, yes, indeed, there is no wandering bark that is not shaken by tempests, and this kind of hyperbolic language doesn't describe anything that is true. Then he says, I never writ, nor no man ever loved. And the whole of the last line is full of negatives. I never writ, nor no man ever loved. And there is alliteration as well to underline the point. So these two sonnets, which are very often used as symbols of true love, to me are exactly the opposite. And I, I would agree with that because it kind of it throws me back to the two gentlemen of Verona, the famous Sylvia soliloquy. When, you know, it, it has those similar like, oh, if, uh, uh, if Sylvia is not around, then, uh, you know, there is no day and, uh, and uh, you know, the song of the nightingale is not the song. You know, it's the hyperbolic language whenever we enter the zone of, uh, of romantic love is, is, is omnipresent. And if you think about the number of times he thinks of love as Cupid, and Cupid is blind, (laughs) so basically he's really supporting the idea that love doesn't see properly. It's infatuation, it's a fantasy, and in that way it belongs to the world of the imagination, not to the world of reality. And then if you look at the different ways in which he treats love uh, in many different plays. It seems to me that um, if you look at the Merry Wives of Windsor, Falstaff is pretending to be in love with the two women in order to gain money. Even if you look at a play like The Merchant of Venice, where Bassanio starts off by being madly in love with Rosaline, and then immediately forgets Rosaline, and uh, goes to woo Portia because she has a lot of money. So he's wanting to marry her because he's money. And then again, it's Antonio, his male friend, who is really willing to die for him. And at the end, when he successfully marries Portia, it's Antonio who's deserted, and it's the male friendship that is broken. And I also think it's, it's significant that three of the strongest male friendships where when they decide to marry the character is named Antonio because in um, uh, in Twelfth Night Sebastian his best friend is Antonio and Antonio gives him the money and Antonio helps him with everything and then at the end when Sebastian decides to marry Olivia because Olivia quickly changes her mind because he looks like Viola and she's earlier been in love with Viola, but over one meeting, she's willing to be in love with Sebastian instead. And so Antonio is left alone, and he's the one who's been the true friend and saved his life, both in the Tempest and by giving him money when he's in need of money. So Antonio is left alone in Twelfth Night, and uh, uh, Antonio is left alone in Merchant of Venice. And then there is also Antonio in another play where you get the same person left alone and deserted by his best friend.
Oh, wow. It, uh, so many resonates. It shows, I mean, how much uh, love permeates all Shakespeare's plays. I mean, on top of all the... Uh, I was thinking of, uh, um, of course, there's the Anthony and Cleopatra uh, as, as well. But, uh, but, but you know, character, the bad characters like uh, Richard III and Macbeth and their relationship, I mean, the way Richard III courts and marries the wife, the widow of the person he killed, and then there is Macbeth and his, uh, and, and Lady Macbeth, his wife. Uh, uh, I mean, uh, how, how do you uh, think of love in those uh, relationships where there is this kind of clear sense of uh, evil going on? Well, to me, one of the significant things in Richard III is when he says that because I am shaped in the way that I am shaped, over which I have had no control, nobody will ever love me. And he says that quite early in the play, that nobody will love me. I am not made for love because of the way I look. Nobody uh, goes beyond the way he looks. And of course, uh, you can imagine that the woman who agrees to marry him uh, does so out of uh, basically calculation because she realizes that he will have power and he will be able to give her something that she cannot have now that she's left a widow. So it seems to me uh, very much uh, using manipulation and claiming love, but it's not true at heart. And then, of course, if you turn to the other kinds of relationships, the relationships between uh, father and daughter, where you get uh, a superb example in King Lear, where the two daughters who claim to love him and use all these beautiful words to say how much they love him uh, actually prove to be true villains and show no, no feeling at all for their old father. And Cordelia, who is the one with the true heart and her refusal to say things just to please her father, she's not going to use words to speak of love because love can't be put into words. And she's the one who really proves to be there for her father. But even when they are reunited, she dies. So it doesn't return to a wonderful relationship between father and daughter there either. It doesn't, no. no. Yeah, you're right. And it's so interesting because it made me think of, uh, because we, we've been speaking of this um, so romantic love, the erotic love, uh, uh, the friendship love, but there's all, of course, the, um, well, the filial love is in old Greek, it is friendship love. That's what it means. Uh, but we usually, when we talk about filial love, it means between parents, we mean between uh, the, the love between parents and children. Uh, and it, you had that example with King Lear and his uh, his daughters, uh, but I suppose uh, where Shakespeare fits uh, the two kinds of love uh, the most, uh, emphasizing the filial love is in Hamlet, because the entire play seems to hinge on you know, the love between Hamlet and his father, who has died, and when we uh, think of his romantic relationship with Ophelia. That's no match. I mean, that doesn't make him budge at all. I mean, it's, uh, you know, they hope that that will somehow affect him, that Ophelia can work her magic on him. Uh, but that, 
So the, it, they're definitely not equal. Uh, the, the, the love for the father is so much greater uh, than, uh, than the, lo- the, the romantic love, right? Uh, That's true. I think that it's true that uh, the way that Hamlet expresses his uh, grief at his father's death and his um, criticism of his mother for marrying the brother we don't know how truly Gertrude loves Claudius, um, but it seems to me the play suggests that Gertrude genuinely loved Claudius. Um, but of course, there is the hint of incest because you're not supposed to marry the dead brother's, uh, the dead man's brother is considered incestuous in Elizabethan times. And then also, uh, the fact that Ophelia shows true love for Hamlet and even goes mad when she realizes that he rejects her. So um, it seems to me that the women are very often showing uh, that they are capable of a more true love, but they are always frustrated and rejected and treated as objects. So they are not really granted the same kind of return of their love as the kind of devotion that many of the female characters show. And it also shows to me that sometimes the, it's the friendship between women that helps them survive. So Emilia's friendship with Desdemona, with Desdemona is what helps her. And you have also the friendship between um, many, many of the female characters in uh, Juliet, you have the nurse who helps Juliet, and so on. And of course, Romeo and Juliet, which is the classic That's, uh, yeah, uh, tragic love story. And there again, I feel that uh, partly the emphasis on Juliet being only 14 years old. So she is a real teenager. And then also the fact that uh, when it comes to fighting for his kinsman, Tybalt, then Romeo leaves Juliet on the night of their wedding and goes to fight Tybalt and risks losing Juliet. So it seems to me that, um, again, Juliet is the one who is more passionate and faithful and uh, is willing to kill herself to die when she loses Romeo. And it is only towards the end when Romeo returns and thinks that she really is dead, that then he feels that he's willing to sacrifice his own life for her. But the outcome is really the reunion of the two opposing families, and the two who really loved each other are both gone. Yes, exactly. And for me, that's, this is the kind of the, the, uh, the irony of, of the romantic love. As you say, it, it, it seems to me, even in Romeo and Juliet, and that's what I wanted to ask you about that one, because it's such a famous example, just as the sonnets, which people read in terms of, okay, well, this is the, the ideal of romantic love and, uh, and that kind of um, mutual uh, devotion. Uh, whereas there is, it's not that mutual. Uh, there is, as you say, an imbalance, uh, even in Romeo and Juliet, especially in the other, with Ophelia, Desdemona. I mean, it's like a pattern moving through the plays where the women are, you mentioned, uh, uh, of course, uh, the two gentlemen of Verona, and she's disguising herself and following uh, them through and, and looking for that love. So, 
So he does seem to ascribe this kind of uh, belief in the ideal of romantic love to women a lot, whereas the men are more inclined to friendship love uh, and seems to be more valued. Uh, and, uh, of course, the, f- the fathers and sons. Uh, the romantic love, in, in a sense, with the, um, uh, in Hamlet, again, you know, the marriage, it kind of... He, Hamlet thinks of his mother as really dirty. Like for is is this mere lust? You know what is she doing? You know she's not devoted to her. So so there's the contrast between the very devoted woman and woman that is not devoted and therefore borders on evil, right? Yeah. And it also depends on how you do interpret uh, Hamlet's attitude in the closet scene, uh, because if the actress really didn't know or suspect that Claudius might have been responsible for the death of her husband. Uh, And she really is shocked when Hamlet suggests that, and she is changing then her mind about Claudius. So even if we believed that Gertrude really loved Claudius and was happy to get the chance to marry him and that she wasn't so happy with Hamlet's father, but nevertheless, when her son opens her eyes, then she turns against Claudius and is willing to drink poison uh, that Claudius has put into the wine uh, in order to support her son in the duel with Laertes. So it seems to me that over and over again, whenever there is a case where you feel that it's genuine love, then somehow it's turned around. There is some discontent. Yeah, and so I feel that it definitely To me, uh, there is a dark side to most of the love stories in Shakespeare's plays. Uh, I agree with that, absolutely. Uh, uh, I'm thinking of, uh, uh, well, uh, you know, um, uh, as you said with Julia, there's this young love, there's this uh, notion that it's very young, right? And it's almost like with these death potions, right? It's almost like that there is a such closeness, a close proximity of love and death. It's almost like death needs to be some kind of proof of like, like you have to be able to die for love in order to prove that you actually love. I mean, there's the one that has to die in order to prove ultimately, like the ultimate proof of love is your death, like the sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice throughout, right? It's not like there's never acceptance like, ah, okay, it's always doubt. But if you die, then, you know, yeah. and that, that's why Romeo dying in the end was, oh, he proves also that he loved. Uh, and there is a section in the Bible which says the, the true, true friend will lay down his life. Uh, so the, it is writ that you will write. And it's interesting that Shakespeare in the sonnet says, I never writ. Uh, it's written in the Bible right. that the true love is the, when you are willing to lay down your life for your friend. Yes. So it's not something that will survive. It's not something that will survive. And that brings me to this question of, because uh, you could think that um, the, the notion of immortality, uh, the writing and, and the immortality, which you mentioned in the so- sonnet, right? My words will survive in a sense, right? Uh, and uh, this love is in this moment of time and that it will be gone uh, there is this kind of contradiction or or um, 
a tension between love and death that uh, somehow like we are thinking maybe that love survives death right uh, that that it will continue right? uh, that you know maybe people will left behind they will continue to love us right uh, uh, but at the same time that we value love exactly because it's not immortal exactly because we there is death because we we, we will die and uh, uh, and, uh, and that's like we know we will lose it it's not it's temporal and I don't know what you think about that. My immediate reaction is that you are connecting it very closely to Freud's idea of the death drive, uh, because Freud opposes exactly love and the death drive. And uh, his only hope for mankind is if somehow love would succeed and the death drive would not be purely destructive. That's right. So you connected very well back to the beginning. I did, in a sense. Yes. <laughs> the circle is complete. The circle is complete. Yes, but uh, what I'm thinking is like there is, uh, especially in Freud, because there is uh, because the eros is procreative. It creates life. It is that's what what's it, what's it all about. And death is its opposite. Uh, yeah, the uh, eros and thanatos, right? Uh, in that which he operates with, uh, absolutely. Well, I'm thinking like in terms of uh, uh, it, that um, the way the loved ones um, um, survive is in our memories, uh, and uh, in, in, there is this sense that like they live on if we remember them and we continue loving them after after they die. And I'm, uh, the reason I'm thinking about this uh, is also a bit kind of personal because there is this. Um, you know, like in um, uh, in religion, and there is the we, we talk about the afterlife, and uh, in Islam, in Islam, uh, there is this sense that uh, uh, we uh, in the afterlife we are judged by individually by the things that we have done, right, and our good deeds and bad deeds and so on, and there is this idea that the only way to actually accumulate new good deeds after you're dead after you've died, is uh, there are two ways. One is if you leave something that is of benefit to humankind. Uh, and the other thing is if you leave behind people who loved you, who remember you, especially children, who will do good things because they love you, and who will remember you in their prayers. So, so in that sense, there is this, um, like, uh, you're gone, but... In a sense, you live on at least for for a while while your children are still loving you. So, so there is a sense that love somehow is affecting the death or the uh, extending your life. Uh, to, to understand, I don't know what you think. But I'm thinking of my father every time, like when uh, after he's passed away, uh, that uh, how often when I actually remember him, that I'm thinking, well, this this love that I'm feeling and uh, the. Uh, that the, the thing, if I pray for him or if I do things out of love for him, is is operative uh, there. But I think very few of Shakespeare's plays actually focus on the memory of the dead person. Oh, 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 Hamlet, of course. Uh, yeah, but basically, um, 
the only time that Hamlet is talking about the father uh, in his memory of him is because he cannot understand why his mother has uh, chosen someone who was so much worse than the father. And uh, there's also this issue about revenge, because you know that at the time, it's exactly when the British uh, state had decided that private revenge was no longer legal. And so it's uh, switching over from leaving the idea of personal revenge according to the traditional, to the new humanitarian idea that human beings don't settle between the clan. It's the state that gives the punishment. And certainly uh, Hamlet's revenge is no way a good revenge of his father's death. He winds up killing his friends, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, and he winds up killing Laertes. And so it seems to me that um, very little in any of the Shakespeare plays that I have read uh, talks about the way in which the dead are glorified. Um, it's much more the reality of this world that he's focusing on. But that, that almost means that he, in a, in a sense, although he seemed to have valued some forms of uh, love, uh, more, as we said, friendship, love, maybe parental, that uh, uh, still, in the end, uh, uh, he didn't believe in any kind of love <laughs> as, as the ultimate force of, of life, that, that somehow there's always some kind of discomfort or discontent with love or, or uh, maybe I, um, a disbelief uh, that it even exists uh, uh, properly. Yeah. As, as is suggested, that it's a question of fantasy and imagination, and uh, it's not, not a reality. That, I think, is the That's conclusion that Shakespeare suggests. I'm sorry to have such a dark, such a, such a dark interpretation, but inevitably to me, the, when you think yes. about the various approaches to love, you can say that there is quite a lot of sexuality, both in the language and in the desire and the lust, but that it should be a kind of ideal of a perfect love. And this brings me to one of the... Uh, the ideas which I use in uh, in the course on love, which I teach uh, at uh, at Stockholm University, which is called Love It Is Discontent, and I use this introduction from uh, Jeffrey Eugenides. Is um, um, he he, uh, he, uh, he did this anthology of uh, greatest love stories, short stories in, in his anthology, and he has one of these claims, which is that um, uh, he puts it this way: love stories. Uh, without exception, give love a bad name. So, like, there is, he, he's not talking about love in real life, whether, whether or not love exists or how we love each other, is it's true or not. But let's say we've now talked about Shakespeare so much and we have come to this gloomy conclusion about love. And this is almost confirming what, uh, that uh, love stories are, uh, always have some kind of discontent or some kind of discomfort that uh, there is, uh, uh, even in, the, the the comedy Shakespeare's comedies. There's never really a happy ending because love really is not true. Right? Uh, so what do you think about that idea that love stories generally are kind of? Uh, or why are we drawn to those kinds of stories? Well, 
love stories, if you use the word story, then obviously it's a kind of creation of your imagination and what you are writing, what you are narrating. I think that the emotional feeling of true love, uh, which you experience as a human being, is a very real physical feeling. But there's no guarantee that that physical feeling will last forever. Uh, because, for example, if you think about um, uh, the relationship between father and child, which is something that Shakespeare, it's very interesting that the mothers are not there for the children. It's always the father and the daughter. And even in The Tempest, when Ferdinand has uh, turned up uh, on the island and Prospero arranges the marriage between Mariana and Pros uh, Prospero, agrees to the marriage, it's of benefit to Prospero because he can then return. And it's important, it seems to me, that at the end of um, The Tempest, uh, Prospero says that um, th these are a world of imagination which is now ended, so that uh, it's not a true world anymore. Yes, uh, absolutely. So the fantasy, the imagination, the storytelling, and this, this is, again, is one of those things which I'm operating with, especially in the podcast, this notion like, what's the connection between love and love story, the narrative? Um, let me uh, ground it this way. Uh, Tom Stoppard made this play, or he wrote this play called The Shakespeare in Love. Uh, it was made into a, a successful movie. And uh, uh, throughout that film, we have uh, the character of Shakespeare. He is in love with someone, uh, a, a, a woman he, he loves very much. He claims he loves very much. And the way he quotes her, the way they are expressing this love is through him writing different plays. She acts in those plays, and they connect through those stories. And even when they separate she lives on, the, the, the relationship continues through another play where she is, uh, uh, again, a character in one of, of those plays. So it seems to me that Stoppard wanted to connect like, uh, or ask if in Shakespeare, um, in a sense connected to what you said earlier about the sonnet and the, 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 it's the, the writing that survives, the, the, the writing is the, ma the main thing, whether or not he, the, he, there is love without love story or, or story or narrative. Uh, can we? What do you think the, about that? It's a big question, I know. Yeah, so, yeah. I, I would say that love certainly exists without narrative. You don't have to tell a story about your love in order to experience the emotion. Um, so it seems to me that it's a very real and a very strong emotion um, that can completely take over your judgment. Um, but the question of whether it will remain an ideal and whether it will last through your whole life, that's something that seems to be very sheer luck. <laughs> yeah. But if I may push you a little bit more on this, uh, let's say... And, you know, we are both parents. We love our children. Uh, we, uh, in fact, you know, I know that uh, you have, uh, I, I'm very much a big fan of your marriage, like your, your, your um, uh, husband, Boo, 
uh, I, I, I just love you as a couple as well. You know, it's just like uh, one of those uh, love stories that I admire a lot. Uh, uh, we don't know, need to go into the private, uh, but I just want to mention it. Uh, so yeah, uh, so I agree. There is that, uh, but uh, is that love? Can can we actually remove? storiness out of it entirely uh the way we love our children we encounter we, we enter this role of a parent and we know the scripts what we're supposed to do i mean the the aside from the feeling itself which i uh, acknowledge I, there's always the elements of the storytelling like what we say how we express that love uh how we change how how we express it, it could be uh, very well, you know, how we learned the stories told by our parents, the stories of Shakespeare, the stories that we have read, how to express love. If I'm a, if I'm a believer in that, the, that uh, love operates in the way that it uh, does in Romeo and Juliet, for instance, that I need to sacrifice myself for love in order to prove it, then, you know, that affects me, right? My, my feelings, or uh, maybe I believe that they should be always equally strong, uh, or uh, so. So this is where I'm kind of uncertain if if the true love, the true feeling that we that we have between ourselves, can I be divorced from stories, from narrative? And I don't know if if I can kind of push you in that direction and, and see. It seems to me that you can certainly expressed deep love and emotion without having to narrate it mm -hmm. because it seems to me that when you hold someone tight mm -hmm. and just the fact that you can feel their caress on your skin yeah. arouses so much passion and so much feeling yeah. and not only passion but also a feeling of sympathy and understanding. Mm. I mean, for example, with our children, there's, when they are born, all you have to do is to hold them tight. Right. You don't have to tell them stories. Yeah. They feel your love. Mm. And certainly when they express their love, they don't tell you stories, but they can express their love. Yeah. So it seems to me that love is not simply a matter of narration. Yeah. No, not simply a matter of that, but I mean that the narration or the stories we have heard about love that we were raised with or have read affects the way sometimes our relationships, uh, like if I'm, let's say, after having reached this gloomy conclusion about Shakespeare, let's imagine that I'm only, uh, uh, that, uh, that all I know about love aside from my feelings is uh, how it functions is through the stories I've, I've read by Shakespeare, for instance. Uh, and then, uh, then I'm expecting certain things from my partner, which uh, maybe I didn't need to expect. And maybe that ruins my relationship. Uh, so I kind of think that a lot of times we put ourselves, or the, the fantasy you, you, you talked about, right? I think the part of the fantasy here is that I imagine myself being a character in a story where, where I imagine that my relationship, my love, is supposed to go in this way. And when those expectations of the plot uh, are not met, then I think, ah, oh, maybe my love is not true. Maybe this, I'm not really in love. Maybe they don't really love me. Like, they don't caress me 
maybe they don't really want me. But so I'm not thinking, okay, well, uh, maybe they're just uh, sensitive to touch or right. But I'm expecting a, a particular forms of expression, and that's what I'm thinking that that love and narrative. Um, kind of. I guess that because we are human beings and we are very much dependent on language and expressing through words, it's understandable that you want to link it to the fact that we are influenced by the stories we have read. And you immediately make me think of a very personal experience because I met my husband on a ship and he was on his way out to India and I was on my way back to Pakistan. And within a very short period of time, we realized that we were in love with each other. I knew that there was no way my parents would ever accept that I married a foreigner. And so when my husband uh, asked me, well, it didn't matter. Um, Just the idea that I would marry outside our own Muslim community was impossible for them to think. And uh, when my husband asked me to marry him, I told him that there's no way that I can do it against my parents' will, and I know it's impossible as far as they are concerned. And uh, as soon as I told my parents when they came home that I had met a foreigner and that I was in love with him and that he had asked me to marry him, they said, it's out of the question and we don't want to meet him, just tell him to go back home. And for a whole year... They didn't agree to meet him because they were so much against the idea. And my father said something I'll never forget. He said, haven't you read enough English literature to know what happens to a shipboard romance? And I said to him, I've also read enough Shakespeare to know what happened to Romeo and Juliet. So there's no way I'm going to risk us dying. I will never marry him without your permission. And it took two years before they gave us permission to marry, at which point my father accepted that it wasn't a shipboard romance. It wasn't. Oh, that's so it didn't live up to the story. It did not live up. But at the same time, uh, and I love that you said that uh, the, uh, the stories themselves played a big part in uh, the way you kind of reasoned around it and what your father said. And the, the experience that you don't have from your own personal life, yes. you get from the literature you read. So, of course, I believe that studying literature and reading enlarges your view of the world. It enlarges your experience of life. So that's not denying. I don't deny the role that stories play in enriching our lives. It's just that I don't think our lives are just stories. And that is a a perfect ending to this. Thank you so much, Richard. I don't want to ruin this. uh, by always extremely stimulating and helpful to talk. This was so beautiful. Thank you so much. Bless you uh, for for everything. And I hope our viewers will enjoy this uh, this podcast. I enjoyed it so much. I feel so warm right now. So. I think it's such a coincidence that yesterday, 3rd of June, was the first time I landed in Sweden, 61 right? years ago exactly. Is that right? So I was telling Boo, isn't there something symbolic about the fact that Adnan is coming to interview me tomorrow and today about is, and today is yes. the day that we celebrate 61 years since I arrived in Sweden. It's, 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 it's fate. Yes, you can say that some things are not just chance, they are destiny. 
uh, fate brought us together more than 20 years ago and uh, uh, the fact that you were uh, the inspiration you know this journey that i've been through uh, as uh, in fact i arrived around this time to sweden as a refugee uh, very much doubting that there is love in the world uh, but uh, hearing you uh, i am um, I knew there was. Yeah. And I must say you've written wonderful books about that as well. I really have enjoyed the books that you've written very, very much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Well done. Thank you.